Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today we have an article that I'm just going over um, the abstract. That's ACOG's 2002 guidelines for exercise during pregnancy and postpartum. I think it's important to note that all of these have been updated, but I also think it's important to follow what the APTA exams base their questions off of. And that's going to be older articles and materials. So similar to the NPTE, there's not going to be questions based off of new research findings for the sole reason that this is to test your knowledge as a clinician on evidence-based practice versus the new research. It also takes a lot of time to generate questions for these exams. So the committee who wrote the study guide noted in the guide that you should prioritize older research. I believe they said before 2007, but I could be wrong. Um, So just a reminder, if you're wondering why I didn't update to the 2020 opinion and why all of these articles are, you know, pretty old. Okay, so let's move on. In January 2002, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is ACOG, published new recommendations and guidelines for exercise during pregnancy and the postpartum period. For the first time, the recommendations suggest a possible role for exercise in the prevention and management of gestational diabetes. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American College of Sports Medicine, so the CDC and the ACSM, have recommended the accumulation of 30 minutes or more of moderate-intensity physical activity on most, or preferably all, days of the week. Moderate-intensity physical activity is defined as activity with an energy requirement of 3 to 5 metabolic equivalents, which you might be more familiar with the shortened version, which is METS. For most healthy adults, this is the equivalent of brisk walking at 3 to 4 miles per hour. ACOG then reviews absolute contraindications. So for these, those are gonna be as follows. One, hemodynamically significant heart disease. Two, restrictive lung disease. Three, incompetent cervix or that cerclage we talked about before. Four, multiple gestation at risk for premature labor. Five, persistent second or third trimester bleeding. Six, placenta previa after 26 weeks of gestation. Seven, premature labor during current pregnancy. 8. Any rupture of membranes, and 9. Pregnancy-induced hypertension. Relative contraindications are up next, so we're looking at things like severe anemia, unevaluated maternal cardiac arrhythmia, chronic bronchitis, poorly controlled type 1 diabetes, poorly controlled hypertension, poorly controlled preeclampsia, poorly controlled thyroid disease, or poorly controlled seizure disease. Extreme morbid obesity or extreme underweight status, which would be a BMI less than 12. History of extreme sedentary lifestyle. Current intrauterine growth restriction. Or being a heavy smoker. Some warning signs to stop our currently exercising populations are going to include things like women who are experiencing things like vaginal bleeding, shortness of breath before exertion, dizziness or headaches, chest pain, muscle weakness, calf pain or swelling, and that's to rule out thrombophlebitis, preterm labor, decreased fetal movement, and amniotic fluid leakage. 
For nutritional requirements, after the 13th week of pregnancy, about 300 calories per day are required to meet the metabolic needs of pregnancy. This energy requirement is increased further when daily energy expenditure is increased through exercise. So we're not saying that pregnant women need only 300 calories per day. That's the added caloric intake that they're going to need. And then it's going to increase even more when daily energy expenditure is increased. So just remember that things biomechanically get harder the longer that pregnancy goes on. So that energy requirement for even just walking is going to increase over time as well. The entire committee opinion is about two pages in length. So while I don't have the full opinion as that's something that I would have to purchase, I only have the abstract. I still provided the summary as well as the contraindications and warning signs just for some repeat review. Generally, participation in a wide range of recreational activities appears to be safe during pregnancy. However, each sport is going to have to be reviewed individually for its potential risk and activities with a high risk of abdominal trauma should be avoided during pregnancy. So, of course, this abstract also goes into scuba diving. Um, If you don't remember, that's due to the fetus being at an increased risk for decompression sickness during this activity, and that's why we're avoiding it. So we're going to make this a two-for-one special and include that Albert article in 2000 as well. It's on the evaluation of clinical tests used in classification procedures in pregnancy related to pelvic joint pain. So let's get right into it. So this next article is authored by Han Albert, Mona Godskissen, and Jess Westergaard. This is out of Denmark, and it looks as though two of them work within a physical therapy department, and Westergaard works within the OBGYN department at the Odense Hospital within Denmark. The author's goal in this article is to have a consistent classification criteria for pelvic joints and low back pain, given that there is believed to be some diagnostic confusion and increases in inappropriate treatments. Numerous methods of varying complexity have been used in the attempt to establish a classification of symptoms in pregnant women with pain from the lower back and the pelvic girdle. The spectrum runs from asking a woman to point out the source of pain on drawing from the body to subjecting her to a complex and large-scale physical exam comprising of more than 40 objective tests. One study classified the pelvic pain suffered by pregnant women in their study into four different groups one being pain in the pubic symphysis, two being pain in the pubic symphysis and the sacral area, another being pain in the pubic symphysis, the sacral area, and the lumbar area, and the last one being pain in the trochanteric area. This classification criteria is created in an effort to separate pelvic from low back pain and have a higher inter-examiner reliability, sensitivity, and specificity. Often clinically, the pelvic region is gauged by two main types of tests. So one's going to be a topographic or a palpation test, where the anomalies of the pelvic alignment are going to be observed and palpated. Another is a pain-provoking test, which is the aim to stress those structures and reproduce the patient's symptoms. So topographic relations in the pelvis, not to mention movements in the pelvic joints, is difficult to perform in an objective manner and with adequate inter-examiner consistency. So the authors agree that Only pain-provoking tests reveal the required objectivity and reproducibility. They believe that the difference in results and often the low inter-examiner reliability in different tests is often due to the fact that many tests, even if they're called the same, are performed and evaluated a little bit differently. In studies where there was a standardization of technique and idiosyncratic behavior of the examiners, there is a much higher inter-examiner reliability found. 
So, more specifically, the aim of the study became to, one, describe a standardized performance of pelvic exam tests, and two, to evaluate the inter-examiner reliability of those 15 clinical tests and to establish the sensitivity, the specificity, and the accuracy in pain discrimination within those tests. In the first part of the study, over a four-week period, 108 consecutive women in their 33rd week of gestation were examined. In two middle weeks, 34 consecutive women were examined in the same day by two therapists to test the inter-examiner reliability. The second assessor was blinded to the exam and results of the first. The patients were instructed not to inform the second assessor of the results of the first exam, and the first and second assessor alternated on a daily basis. A test was considered positive if it reproduced or aggravated the pain from the exact location of one or more of the pelvic joints. Eight of the women had pelvic pain and 26 were pain-free. So to test the sensitivity and the specificity, a prospective study of 2,269 pregnant women booked for delivery at two hospitals over a one-year period was conducted. Each participant enrolled at week 33 of gestation and the only criteria for inclusion was knowing the Danish language. The participants were separated into a healthy group and a diseased group, which I think sounds kind of dramatic for having pain being in the diseased group. Um, So to be classified as diseased with pelvic joint pain, all of the following criteria had to be filled. Daily pain at the time of exam, so that was 33 weeks of gestation. Two, the women had to be able to point out the exact area of one or more of the pelvic joints as the pain area. And three, the test used should have been able to provoke or aggravate that pain from one or more of the pelvic joints. So all others were considered pelvic joints healthy or (laughs) non-diseased. On the basis of the results obtained by the pilot study of 108 women, as well as the previous clinical experience, the diseased women were classified into five subgroups. So there's four classification groups and one that was just kind of miscellaneous. So let's talk about those subgroups now. The first subgroup was the pelvic girdle syndromes. That was women who are experiencing daily pain and all three of those pelvic joints confirmed with positive pain provoked by the tests from all of those joints. The second group was symphysis solysis, which was daily pain in the pubic symphysis only, confirmed with positive pain provoked by the test from that pubic symphysis area. So symphysis olysis does not imply an actual lysis, but the nomenclature was just used by the Danish health authorities as a classification of pregnant women with pelvic pain. The third group was one-sided SI syndrome, so that's daily pain from only one sacroiliac joint, and that was also confirmed with positive pelvic pain provoked by tests on that same joint. The fourth group was double-sided SI syndrome, which was daily pain from both SI joints confirmed with positive pain provoked by tests on both joints. And then that fifth mysterious miscellaneous group was daily pain in one or more of the pelvic joints, but inconsistent objective findings. So like their pain history from the pubic symphysis and the objective findings would be from like one SI joint. This category also included findings indicating inflammatory rheumatic diseases. So the exam of participants was divided into two parts. One was the questionnaire and one was a physical exam. The questionnaire had 29 questions on their obstetric history, previous back and pelvic problems, a social background and working conditions, and it was followed by a pretty meticulous pain history consisting of 33 questions. In this part of the questionnaire, the participant was asked to point on their own body to the exact location of pain. And then to test the reproducibility of responses to the questionnaire, the 34 women involved in the tests for inter-examiner reliability were also asked to fill out the questionnaire twice within an interval of a few hours. 
The standardized physical exam included 15 physical tests with 48 possible test results. Of the possible test results, 34 were related to the pubic symphysis and the SI joints. So for instance, to be classified in the symphysis solysis group, a woman had to have just one of those 34 possible test results positive from the symphysis and the equivalent pain history. The remaining 14 tests concerned structures in or related to the pelvis, like the hip joints, the glute muscles, the uterine ligaments. I could go on. Of the 15 tests, four were differential diagnosis tests in order to exclude spinal root compression, weakness of the glute medius muscle, difference in the length of the lower extremities, and possible involvement of the hip joints. Interrelator reliability and testing standardization was a huge priority with these authors, and they made that very clear. So for the six physiotherapists examining the 22,069 women, several training sessions were executed beforehand to ensure standardization of technique and test interpretation. And then let's talk a little bit more about the description of the actual test performed. I'm going to try to be equally brief and thorough on these, which is pretty hard. So in case any of you aren't fully familiar or haven't used some of these special tests in a while, reviews are always great. If you are the special test expert, feel free to use that 30 second fast forward a couple times. In all of the tests that we go over, localization of the pain provoked is the most important part. So unless otherwise stated, in a positive test, the patient is experiencing pain in the pubic symphysis or the SI joint, and all tests were performed on both lower extremities. The authors also note that the test should be performed in the order most likely to induce the least pain, with the fewest possible changes in position during the exam. So the first one was the Trendelenburg test. This is a test where the standing woman turns her back to the examiner and standing on one leg flexes the other leg at 90 degrees, so that's the knee and the hip. The test is positive if the hip is descending on the flex side. Pelvic topography, the examiner notes the following details, the level of both major trochanters, the level of both posterior and anterior iliac spine, the level of the iliac crest and the direction of the innominates. If the anterior and posterior iliac spine, as pairs, are the same horizontal level, the pelvis is in a proper alignment. If not, the pelvis is misaligned. If the four spinae tilt on opposing planes, so if their configuration is like a wet rag being wrung, not my example, then the test is positive for pelvic torque. Measurements of the length of the lower extremities is our next one. So the patient's going to be supine. The distance is measured from the upper edge of the pubic symphysis to the lower edge of that medial tibial malleoli. And the measurement is repeated at least twice. The test is positive if there's a difference of one centimeter or more between the two legs. The next test I have been pronouncing wrong my entire career. It's pronounced the Lasagueu test. It's L-A-S-E-G-U-E. I've been pronouncing Lasagueu. The patient is supine. The examiner evaluates each leg in each turn. So if pain in the affected dermatome is reported, the test is going to be considered positive. And that's where an expanded Lasagueu maneuver is performed, where the leg is lowered until the pain disappears, and then there's going to be a dorsal flexion of the foot performed. If that result is the same pain as before, that extended less gay test is positive. I wasn't really familiar with that expanded less gay, so that was new to me. Moving on to the Patrick's Fabers test, which most people might be familiar with. That's another supine test. One leg is flexed, abducted, and rotated out, so that the heel rests on the opposite kneecap. If the test results in pain on the medial side of the knee in the femur or in the inguinal region, that indicates that the hip joint is affected. If the pain is experienced in the pelvic joints, that test becomes classificatory. 
Posterior pelvic pain provoking test, the P4 or the thigh thrust test, if anyone's familiar with those names. That's another supine test. One leg is flexed at 90 degrees at the hip and the knee joint. With hands on the raised knee, you're going to put pressure downwards exerted into the femur and the pelvis. The next is Benel's test, where the patient is also supine. One leg is moved out into 30 degrees abduction and 10 degrees of flexion in the hip joint. And then the hip joint is first pushed into, then pulled from the pelvis, causing a sagittal movement. Next up is the compression test or the gapping test. With the patient supine again, the examiner crosses their arms and place your palms on the iliac crest close to the superior anterior iliac spine on both sides. And then there's that firm lateral pressure applied to both sides. Next is passive abduction in the hip joint. Patient is supine. Each leg in turn is abducted by the examiner. The angle at which the pain is first reported either in the pubic symphysis or the SI joint is then recorded. Next is the passive adduction or adduction in the hip joint. Patient still supine, each leg is in turn adducted by the examiner, and the angle in which the pain is first reported from either the pubic symphysis or the SI joint is recorded again. Passive flexion in the hip joint is next. Still laying down here, the examiner flexes the hip and the knee joints and records the angle of flexion at the hip where pain is first reported by the patient. Four left. So palpation of the pubic symphysis is next. Still laying down. The entire front side of the pubic symphysis is palpated gently. If the palpation causes pain that persists more than five seconds after removal of the examiner's hand, it's recorded as pain. If the pain disappears within five seconds, it's just recorded as tenderness. Next is the palpation of the long dorsal sacroiliac ligaments. So finally, we're off of our our supine position. The patient's going to be lying on her side with slight flexion of both the hip and the knee. The areas above the SI joints are going to be palpated. If palpation causes pain that persists five seconds after removal of the hand, it's recorded as pain. And then similarly to the last test, if that pain disappears within five seconds, it's just recorded as tenderness. The separation test, we're staying on our side here. The palm of the examiner's hand is placed on the outside of the uppermost anterior superior iliac spine. The examiner then presses gently with the other hand on the back of the first hand. The penalis test is next and last. The patient is going to be sitting on the edge of the exam table with their legs spread and as far back on the exam table as possible. The patient's feet should be free of the floor and her arms should hang between the legs. The examiner is going to place a thumb on each of the PSIS. As the patient bends slowly forward, they're going to note whether the two thumbs move up at the same level or whether one rises higher than the other. In the first case, the test is going to be negative, so that's going to be if the two thumbs come at the same time, that's negative. In the second case, so if one rises more, um, that's going to be positive, especially if the thumb rises on the normally painful joint. So positive if the thumb rises on the normally painful joint. And that's the pedalis test. Just a point to remember, the wording used for the testing of compression and separation is going to really vary depending on whether a given test is described relating to that pubic symphysis or to that SI joint, right? All right. So if you weren't a special test expert, you very suddenly are now, at least on those 15 special tests. So let's talk about the results. Out of the 2,269 women, 535, which is about 24%, fulfilled the classification criteria for pelvic joint pain.
There were about 148, or 6.5%, with pain coming solely from the lower lumbar region, and they were classified as healthy with respect to pelvic joint pain. So if you're wondering about that questionnaire that the women took two times in the matter of a few hours, the reproducibility was about 96.2%, and the errors are mostly surrounding a question regarding pain during different daily activities. The results of the first part of the study show an inter-examiner reliability calculated as a percentage of between 88 and 100%. The reliability levels of six tests are almost perfect, and 11 of the tests are above 0.4, which is normally regarded as sufficient. Three tests are below kappa 0.4, two of which are topographic tests. The only topographic test with a kappa above 0.4 is pelvic topography, which we talked about really early. If you forget what a kappa is in relation to research, the kappa coefficient is effectively discounting the proportions of agreement expected by chance. The test that the kappa was iffy about included palpation of the long dorsal ligament, the length of the lower extremities, and the pedalis test. So big picture here, what tests are we supposed to use with our patients clinically? So in the three classification groups where pain is evident in the SI joints, three tests have superior sensitivity. And those are going to be the posterior pelvic pain provocation tests, that P4, the Minnell's test, and Patrick's Faber test. In the two classification groups where pain is evident in the pubic symphysis, two tests are superior in those regarding sensitivity, and that's going to be the Trendelenburg test and just palpating the pubic symphysis, which I thought it was helpful to kind of review what's a positive in palpation of the pubic symphysis and that five seconds of differentiating between pain and tenderness. So I like this study because it described a standardized way to perform tests for examining pelvic joints and it assesses the inter-examiner reliability and the sensitivity and specificity of 15 clinical tests. I also liked that the results showed a high inter-examiner reliability, a high sensitivity, and a high specificity. So this article goes into discussion on all the tests and their reliability, the reasonings why some of them may have been more reliable than others. I'm a big take-home person myself, so I'm just going to keep it clinical and move on to some of those pieces. Read the discussion if you're interested in more information on studies behind each test and other research protocols. I tend to get really lost in the sauce of research parameters because I like them, and then that's the opposite point of this podcast but just know that it's there. So let's talk about take-home points. Number one, for SI joint pain, we're gonna look at that P4 test, which is the posterior pelvic pain provocation test, the Minnell's test, and the Patrick's Faber test. For pubic symphysis pain, we're gonna look at the Trendelenburg test and palpation of the pubic symphysis. So know the special tests. I think it's fair to say Maybe it's less important to know the special test that the authors reported had a poor kappa, but not every patient is gonna be a research study. So our next article is going to be on the risk on new onset incontinence following a forceps or a vacuum delivery in primiparous women by Aria in 2001. And so we're a little ways through the pregnancy and postpartum week, so I hope you're sticking through it with me. I hope to see you all newly confirmed special test experts listening at our next article. Bye, everyone. Bye.